I invite you to turn to that chapter that we just read from, Daniel chapter 4. As we are consider our, our continuing rather uh, our studies in a series that I've entitled "Bridging the Gap," recognizing the gap between being hearers of the word and doers of the word, we are taking a number of doctrines revealed in the word and contemplating what it means to be doers of those doctrines and not simply hearers of those doctrines. And we come today to consider the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We've considered the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God Himself, the doctrine of holiness. We come today then to consider the doctrine of God's sovereignty. How do you do God's sovereignty. A lot of people buck against it, but what should the response be? And what I'll focus on largely today is really the impact that the truth of this doctrine should have on us. And then I'll probably take up another study and look at more of the practical ramifications of that doctrine. Borrowing largely from Paul Tripp's book, Do You Believe?, and this is the next uh, in, in his chapters, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And as I thought about this, I, I, I wrestled with uh, what passage to deal with. Uh, certainly, the book of Daniel places a strong emphasis on sovereignty. There are other places we could turn to as well. I contemplated a little bit Job toward the end of the book when the Lord appears to Job and interrogates Job. And basically, if you look carefully at the theology of that manifestation of God to Job, you discover that God is enumerating before Job the various domains in which he rules. And he's challenging Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens, etc., etc.? Uh, of course, the impact this had on Job was for him to wisely cover his mouth and recognize he had spoken very unwisely, and he humbled himself before the Lord. But in the end, I, I settled on the book of Daniel, and especially chapter 4, because as we've just read this chapter, I think you're able to tell this was the lesson that God impressed upon King Nebuchadnezzar that it's God who rules, uh, who rules in such a way that his kingdom includes the kingdoms of the earth. He sets up one, he brings down another. We could, I suppose, have gone to the book of Exodus, where the same thing is said of Pharaoh, for this cause raised I thee up to show my glory. So, chapter 4. I won't take the time to read the chapter again, but let me read verse 35, okay, from chapter 4. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, 
or say unto him, What doest thou? I say, when it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, perhaps no other book in the Bible emphasizes that truth the way Daniel does. In fact, I think you could probably take that theme of God's sovereignty and assign it to this entire book. Although, having said that, it can't be denied that the theme of God's sovereignty runs throughout Scripture. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis, where we have the account of God's creation, it's made very apparent in Scripture that the creator of the world, by virtue of being its creator and sustainer, must also be the ruler of all creation. And certainly by the time you reach the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it's readily apparent that it is Christ who rules and reigns, as obvious as the truth of God's sovereignty appears, somehow it seems that there are some, even many, in Adam's fallen race that find it hard to affirm this truth, that God is sovereign, that he rules and reigns. And King Nebuchadnezzar is a case in point. You might say he had to learn the hard way that the Lord rules this world and can set up and bring down whoever he wants. Chapter 4 gives us the account of Nebuchadnezzar's, what amounts to his second dream in the book of Daniel. And the lesson of his second dream is essentially the same as the lesson of his first dream. And the lesson was really very simple. It's the lesson that, as Christians, we need to affirm. It's a lesson that, unfortunately, Christians sometimes are often slow to acknowledge. And the lesson is simply this. God rules and reigns over the kings of the earth. He rules and reigns over every domain. By the time you reach the end of this chapter, you find Nebuchadnezzar making an impressive confession that the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The simple lesson about the sovereignty of God over the kings of the earth I take to be the key theological lesson from the book of Daniel. Unfortunately, many Christians who seem to be more interested in producing their prophecy charts tend to skip over the obvious, or at least they fail to draw the benefit that comes from affirming the glorious truth that God rules over all. This, to my mind, is the great blessing of the book of Daniel. We see that our God's in charge. We see that he rules and reigns. I believe the same thing holds true with the book of Revelation. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. John writes in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. So you have a, a blessing, a blessing pronounced on those who 
Read and heed the book of Revelation. And I believe the blessing gained does not come by being able to tie in news headlines to Bible verses. The blessing comes in seeing Christ, that he rules and reigns over all, and that it is his cause that triumphs over all. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel says to John in Revelation 19 and verse 10. And in that book, we see Christ ruling over all. We see Christ's kingdom prevailing. We see Christ's followers triumphant over the world that despises them because the world despises Christ. Now, returning to the book of Daniel... Let me say that I love the fact that it was a pagan king that was eventually compelled to confess that God rules over all. This was not a ruler, Nebuchadnezzar that is, was not a ruler who received his education in Jerusalem. It was a ruler that worshipped and served idols. It was a ruler that was steeped in darkness And as slow a learner as he was, and as proud a sinner as he was, his slowness and his pride didn't prove to be insurmountable to God. And we can take heart that God is able to humble the pride of any proud sinner, even proud sinners that are world rulers. And he's able to make any sinner know who truly rules and reigns. Oh, that he would reveal himself that way to those that rule us in high places. I find this lesson to be particularly appealing at this time in our nation's history when we have proven to ourselves that as a nation we are anything but a Christian nation. In terms of where we find ourselves in our country today, I think you would agree with me that there's a definite spiritual sense in which we find ourselves, like the Jews in the book of Daniel, we find ourselves in exile. Oh, we haven't been supplanted, but on the other hand, there's little, if anything, around us that resembles our Christian heritage. Prayer has been for the longest time banned from our public schools. Creation or even intelligent design theories are banned from the world of academia. Morality has been turned on its head in such a way that sin is sanctioned and virtue is outlawed. And there's a great deal of apprehension in the air because the immoral and ungodly pagan religion of secular humanism appears to be so greatly strengthened in our civil government. Add to this apprehension about our political and moral climate the immediate worry and anxiety and concern that comes from the state of the economy, all which seems to be headed in a wrong direction. And what will the outcome be, we ask ourselves. Will I have a job tomorrow? Will I be able to provide for my family next month or even next week? Will the outlook and planned policies of pagan rulers and civil government continue to make the situation worse? 
And amidst such discouragement and worries, it becomes essential for the Christian to be able to affirm by faith the sovereign rule of God over every dominion in the world. So that's what I want to draw your attention to in the moments that remain this morning. The benefits, if you will, the benefits to affirming God's sovereignty. The benefits of affirming that. And it does bring benefit to the Christian, as we'll see in the course of this study. Consider with me, first of all, that one of the benefits to affirming God's sovereignty is that it keeps everything in its proper perspective. We can keep things in the right perspective by affirming the sovereignty of God. We learn from the example of King Nebuchadnezzar how incredibly short-sighted a pagan ruler can be and how hard it is for pride to die. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 28. It says there, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, this dream and its interpretation. It all came to pass upon him. At the end of twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Oh, in his dream, which occurred at this point uh, from the verses we've just read, this this, uh, dream that he had and that was interpreted for him goes back a whole year, 12 months. In his dream 12 months earlier, the point was emphasized to him that it is the Most High who rules in the kingdom of men. Look at verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. So there was the substance of his dream, you know, and it kind of makes me wonder, uh, why did you need that statement interpreted? That seems to speak with such clarity that it requires no interpretation. Okay? The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, giveth it to whomsoever he will. And then you come forward a few verses, verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. Daniel speaking now. And this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Daniel's interpretation of the dream really becomes just a a repeating of some of the content of the dream. Here's what's going to happen to you, king, until you know this, until you learn who really rules. 
His first dream, you remember what I said, this in chapter 4 is actually his second dream. His first dream back in chapter 2 served the same purpose and should have conveyed the same lesson about who rules. In chapter 2, God showed this king how history was going to unfold. In that dream, you may recall, if you've read Daniel, you may recall a dream in which he saw an image whose head was gold, typifying the Babylonian Empire. The breast and the arms of the image was silver, typifying an inferior empire to follow the Babylonian Empire. The belly and thighs of the image were brass or bronze, typifying yet a third empire to follow. And the legs were iron with iron feet, the toes of which were mingled with clay, typifying a fourth empire to come, generally recognized as the Roman Empire. In that dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone cut without hands out of a mountain, which smashes this image on the toes and breaks the image into pieces, and then that stone grows into a great mountain, thus teaching a very clear lesson that it will be God's kingdom that triumphs in the end. And how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the lesson? We find him in chapter 3, making a great image, was he doing this as a response to the image in his dream? Some commentators think so. But rather than patterning the image after his dream, he makes the entire image out of gold, which some Bible teachers feel indicate that he tenaciously held to the view that it would be the Babylonian kingdom, you remember, with the gold head, now the whole thing is gold, so it will be the Babylonian kingdom, which would be the never-ending dynasty. Hence, not just the head was gold, but the entire image that he crafted. His pride contribute, contributed greatly to his short-sightedness. By the end of chapter 4, however, it does seem that he caught on. The last testimony he bears in the book of Daniel is found at the end of chapter 4 where we read his final words. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. At last he got it. You may call him a slow learner, but I guess a slow learner is better than no learner. I find it interesting and comforting to observe in the book of Daniel how on two different occasions involving two different rulers, pagan rulers, you find the beginning of a chapter revealing the passing of an ungodly decree and then you find at the end of those same chapters the issuing of follow-up decrees that call for respect to be shown to the God of Daniel. The first instance of this is in chapter 3. You know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow to the king's idol. And when, in, in the king's grace, they were given a second chance, still they refused. 
This provoked the king's wrath all the more. And so the command was given to heat the furnace to make it seven times hotter. And the three Hebrew children were cast into the flames, and yet they were unaffected by the flames. And not only unaffected by the flames, but the text makes it plain that there was one who stood in the midst of those flames with them. You remember Nebuchadnezzar asked the question, how many men did we throw in? I thought there were three. Why am I now seeing four? And the fourth one is generally believed to be the presence of Christ himself in the midst of the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The thing I want you to see is that a decree occurs in the beginning of the chapter and another decree occurs at the end of that chapter. If you'd look over in chapter 3, in verse 29, this now follows the decree. Okay, that early decree went like this. Everybody has to bow down to the image. When you hear the instruments play, you have to bow down to the image. That was the king's decree. Here's the decree at the end of the chapter. Words again of Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Wow, wouldn't it be shocking to the people of God to hear such a, a decree like that come from the rulers in our nation down the road. Oh, that God would bring it to pass. The second instance of this same phenomenon of a decree at the beginning and a decree at the end, that's found in chapter 6. At that point of time, we discover the Babylonian Empire has been conquered by the Medes and Persians, just as God said it would. And under now a second ruler, King Darius, Daniel is set up over all the presidents and counselors. And just like in the realm of politics today, this makes Daniel's associates jealous. Through their shrewdness, they're able to convince King Darius to approve a law, a decree, if you will, that bans prayers or petitions to any god or man for a 30-day period. All prayers and petitions must be directed to the king alone. Look ahead in chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not, Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. And again, you know the story. Daniel continues his regular practice of prayer. His associates bring charges against him. 
and before the chapter is ended, we find Daniel in the lion's den, and we find Daniel's life preserved by God. Kind of makes me wonder what he did in that lion's den once he perceived that their mouths had been shut. Did he talk to those lions? Did he pet those lions, do you suppose? Um, who knows? But at any rate, uh, they became, I guess, like pet little kitty cats before him with the Lord's doing, his life preserved. And at the end of that sixth chapter, we discover yet another decree by another pagan ruler. Look in chapter 6, verse 25 now. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. Isn't that amazing how these decrees are followed up by decrees that affirm the glory of God? Now the lessons that these two events should convey to the followers of Christ today are pretty plain. The Lord rules and reigns above and is able to overturn the plans of pagan rulers. Ungodly decrees can be turned into decrees that call for respect for the God of heaven. The other lesson that comes readily to mind is the lesson that the people of God can expect fiery furnaces and dens of lions. The sovereignty of God, you see, does not exempt the followers of Christ from the trials of their faith. There is an aim in the trial of your faith. So Peter writes in his first epistle, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's a text you should keep in mind when you find yourself in the midst of trials. This trial is not without purpose. This trial has a divine design behind it, and that design is that your faith be found under praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ. When we see paganism seemingly strengthened, therefore, and when we see the increase of our trials, either as a result of ungodly rulers and decrees or as a result of providential circumstances, Let's keep all these things in their proper perspective. God rules and reigns, and like I say, there is a purpose to your trials, a purpose of grace that will lead to your faith being found unto praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And if you recognize that, my, how that should bolster your strength and your courage in the midst of your trials. Interestingly enough, we find a statement made by Nebuchadnezzar that shows us the effect of affirming the truth of God's sovereign rule. I love this statement. Back in chapter 4, verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar again speaking, he says, 
At the same time, at the time, that is, that he uh, affirmed the sovereign rule of God, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. His kingdom was given back to him. Okay? Note what it says at the very beginning of that statement. At the same time, my reason returned unto me. Do you see the connection between affirming God's sovereignty and a man's sanity? A follower of Christ who loses the perspective of God's rule and reign, in, in a sense, you could say, is reduced to the level of a beast. A beast that lacks sanity. I'm sure many of you are aware of the maddening strain that presses you sore when you think that you're on your own and you're tempted to think that with everything else God rules over, he's somehow forgotten you and left you to fend for yourself. I honestly don't know how a person could get out of bed in the morning who doesn't believe that God rules and reigns over all. So let's affirm in our worship this morning the sovereignty of God. The same one who sets up one and brings down another is the same one who rules today. And his rule extends not only over those that occupy high office, but his rule extends over everything. I know I've cited R.C. Sproul before on this. He's the one that makes the remark that there's no such thing as a maverick molecule under the dominion of God. He rules over all. Indeed, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. So you could argue then that we gain the benefit of sanity. We gain the benefit of stability by keeping things in their proper perspective. Would you consider with me next and finally that the benefit to affirming God's sovereignty is also seen and that it strengthens our resolve to be faithful. It should strengthen your resolve to be faithful. Here I could argue is where we bridge the gap here is where we do sovereignty and not just hear it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was arguably a slow learner. His pride kept him from the truth for quite a period of time. I don't believe, however, you could say the same for Daniel or his three friends. There may have been a time when they were tempted to doubt God's sovereignty and perhaps doubted God's love and loyalty. After all, they were in the land of exile. They were in captivity. Jerusalem had been overrun by the Babylonians and would be destroyed. The temple had been plundered, and we're told in the opening verses of the book of Daniel that part of the vessels of the house of God had been carried into the land of Shinar and placed in the treasure house of Nebuchadnezzar's false god. Now, all of these things working together, uh, a dismal 
set of circumstances for Daniel and his three friends. But even in the midst of such abysmal circumstances, I don't believe Daniel ever doubted. His prayer in chapter 9, and I commend that prayer to you. Look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, probably one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament, and a very good one in what it teaches you about prayer. His prayer in chapter 9 contains his confession that the Israelites had sinned and that God had been faithful even to his threatenings of judgment. And that's something to keep in mind when God gives warnings of judgment. They're not idle threats. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. That's in chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. And so it appears in chapter 1 that the effect of the adverse circumstances of Jerusalem upon Daniel served not to weaken his faith, but actually to strengthen it. And so we find him as early as chapter 1 and verse 8, demonstrating his resolve. We read in that verse, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Absolutely resolved in his heart, circumstances notwithstanding, that he would be true to the dietary laws that God had prescribed for his people. This resolution on the part of Daniel is rather amazing when you consider it in its context. Daniel had been uprooted from his home, carried into captivity. How easy would it have been for him in the bitterness of his circumstances to say, the Lord has forsaken us and the Lord has forsaken me. Why should I bother to serve him? Why shouldn't I just go with this new flow and indulge in the king's meat and the king's wine? You ever find yourself tempted to ask yourself the same question when your circumstances seem to take a terrible turn for the worse? You have it rough while the ungodly seem to have it easy. You have it tough and they seem to prosper. That arguably was the case in Daniel's day. The ones that enjoyed prosperity and took their ease and indulged in the meat and the wine were the same ones that worshipped idols. The psalmist, you know, complains about that very thing in Psalm 73. And after describing the prosperity of the ungodly at some length, the psalmist shares the conclusion that he had arrived at in his weakness. Listen to what he says in verse 13 of Psalm 73. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Oh, I have it so rough and the ungodly have it so easy. That's what he's saying in effect. This is the natural reaction of the flesh to adverse circumstances. 
And the psalmist later acknowledges his weakness and his short-sightedness. We read a little further down in verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. And then note what he says. I was as a beast before thee. Kind of a connection there, isn't it? We're reminded of Nebuchadnezzar being reduced to a beast, having lost his sanity until he gained the right perspective on God's sovereignty. There was a sense in which the psalmist felt himself to be in that same kind of situation, spiritually speaking. Daniel, however, saw the whole matter from the right perspective from the outset. He knew that even in his captivity, the Lord ruled and reigned in heaven. And so his focus became sharpened on his obligation to be faithful to his God. And so we read that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Our knowledge of God's rule and reign should have the same impact on us. Our resolve should be strengthened to be true to our God and King. Oh, that we might be delivered from the easy flow of this world, the easy flow of immorality and marital infidelity and a lack of personal responsibility and internet pornography. Why not go that way, the flesh asks. It's the way all the world is going. And obviously, God must not be too concerned, for he's allowed men to come into high office that will make sin all the easier. Sin is acceptable, and the world understands. So go with the flow and spare yourself the hardship and vanity of serving God so the devil will whisper in your ear. Oh, may God help us all to avoid such beastly insanity. I must say that if the state of our nation has had any positive effect upon me, it would be that it's made me sharpen my focus to the truth that our nation's problems are spiritual before they're political. And you know, that's something to keep in mind, and you'll probably find me thumping that again and again, especially as we get closer to November, when we'll all be tempted to pin our hopes on men running for office, keep ever in mind that our nation's problems are first spiritual before they're ever political, and spiritual problems must be confronted through the use of spiritual means, which means in turn that we need to be seeking the Lord our God as never before. And this leads to my next sub-point about Daniel's resolve. He was resolved to seek the Lord in prayer, even when prayer was made illegal. Daniel 6 and verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, the writing that outlawed prayer for 30 days, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. The prayer life of Daniel, I suppose, is worth a study all by itself. Let me just point out here that Daniel would not be denied his time in prayer. 
He went to prayer knowing the writing was signed, verse 10 tells us. That would indicate to us that he also knew the penalty for violating the signed writing, which was being cast into a den of lions. Oh my, think about that for a moment. Bring that into the future, okay? You will give up prayer or be cast to the lions. Um, I think I can take a 30-day break. Maybe I'll just uh, focus on reading my Bible instead and just leave off prayer. We'll, we'll err here on the side of safety. Not so with Daniel. His prayer was real. His prayer life was real. This was communion with God. He would not be denied. I've often marveled at his resolve, especially as I compare it to the way we are so easily distracted from the place of prayer. What does it take to keep you from seeking the Lord? Is it a busy schedule? Is it worldly entertainment? Is it the weakness of the flesh? Oh, how I would that you would draw from Daniel's example and devote yourselves to seeking Christ. How else will, will hearts be turned? How else will ungodly decrees be overturned? How else will the child of God protect himself from caving into anguish and despair? These are days that call for the strengthening of our resolve not for making excuses for prayerlessness, no matter how valid those excuses may seem. And I shouldn't pass from this point of increased resolve without mentioning those three Hebrew children who also showed their resolve in chapter 3. When the decree was given to bow to the king's idol, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not comply. And when they were arrested and stood before the king, they stated their resolve in no uncertain terms. So we read in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this is the three Hebrew children now speaking, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Their assertion reveals, doesn't it, that they had no certain assurance in the temporal realm that they would be delivered. They did not know that they would be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar uh, if it meant death, or they did know that, rather, they would be delivered from him through death. That's the amazing thing about death, you know. Once you've been put to death, your tormentors don't have any more power over you. Once you've crossed Jordan, so to speak, you are entirely in God's hands. That's why Christ instructs his followers not to fear them, which can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, 28. Those three Hebrew children recognized something that they viewed as being of much greater importance than their own survival. They viewed the honor of God as being the most important thing. Oh, how they stand in contrast to the mindset of our day 
which subordinates God to the happiness of man. Those Hebrew children had the right perspective on God. And so I hope you can see the importance of establishing and maintaining the right perspective yourselves. Take heart, believer. God rules and reigns, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. He sets up one. He brings down another. He rules and overrules the decrees of men. And this ruler over all nations happens also to be your Savior and Lord. He orders all things for your good and for his glory. And so long as you can affirm by faith his sovereign rule, you will also be enabled to view every circumstance in life from the right perspective, from the higher perspective of his rule, and from the eternal perspective of his purpose. And in affirming his sovereignty that way, your sanity and stability and confidence and peace will be made sure as a result of such an affirmation. Your steadfast resolve to be true to him depends then at the end of the day of holding an exalted view of him. And so I hope and trust that you will, with the eye of faith, see him seated on his throne, the one who gained his kingdom by virtue of what he accomplished in his atoning death, May our confidence in him be strong. And as you strive to honor and serve and know him, then may it become your, your privilege to do great exploits in his name and for his glory. Let's close then in prayer, shall we? And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, bring this meeting to a close, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord, that by thy grace we've been enabled in thy power to bow before that rule. We've surrendered to it. And we profess ourselves to be, O oh Lord, your humble subjects. We ask, O oh Lord, that thou wilt help us to keep a proper and exalted view of our Savior ever before our minds. May the Holy Spirit himself minister the truth of it to our hearts so that nothing in this sin-cursed world can shake us or disturb our, our peace or our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.